Namaste and in La Ketch, and welcome to this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel, and this week's guest is Arthur Jones. He is uh, one of LinkedIn's top executive management voices. He co-creates with startups, coaches, and solopreneurs as a catalyst for clarity. He's an executive coach. He's a creator of Narrative Lens and From Story to Strategy Process. He's a founder of It's Your Story Lab. He was the chief marketing officer of the Art of Inbound Marketing, and he's a graduate of Rutgers University in Economics. Arthur, glad to have you here. Absolutely. Uh, Zen, thank you for having me on, on your show. Um, uh, one world in the new world is, is a great sentiment, and I'm happy to join you on this stage. Cool. We're like a couple of little kids, right? We're two or yeah. more gathered and we're going to be, you know, childlike and just have some fun. Yeah. Uh, so as kids, you know, the first things that we begin to experience is that internal stuff that we go through, right? In, in assessing our environment, the people around us, what we can do, what we can get away with, right? <laughs> and yeah. so on and so forth. So <clears throat> you have obviously developed well and, and had some inkling of this inner awareness for some time in, in the work, uh, demonstrated in the work you're doing now. As a kid, how did that all begin? What kind of, of things were going on and how did you first learn that there was something else? Well, I think um, growing up in New Jersey, growing up in New Jersey, um, it's the Garden State, um, although most people know it as a turnpike, a, a right. place that you travel between Connecticut and Philadelphia, perhaps, because that's all they see. But a child growing up in New Jersey, um, playing with turtles and snakes and frogs and, I guess, forest bathing, you know, the thing that there were trees everywhere. Oh, that's and, a great term, forest bathing. Oh, yeah. I think that's what the Japanese call it. And I just borrowed their term because as children... You know, I come from that that era in the last century where you could go out in the morning and just have to be home before the street lights came on, yeah. and you I, had free will. As I did as well. Had had a wasn't a forest, but it was a woods nearby. Yeah, and 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 in the woods, you would ride your bike to the woods, and you might have a fort that you'd built in the woods, and you'd hang out there all day with your friends, and you would tell tales to each other, and then maybe go out and play some wiffle ball, and then go back to your fort. And I think that connection with the, the tree line, kind of disappearing into the tree line and being among nature was my first connection to the magic of just being alive and the magic and wonder and awe of what One might we, call it the natural world, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it was, it was, it was like food for our souls as kids because we, that was how we spent our summers when we weren't in school in and mm -hmm. out of the tree line, uh, up and down the hills on our bikes and just having wildly fun, fun times. But with that as the, the stage that I, I grew up on, um, my family, my mother was um, the youngest of 13 children. Um, she was that, uh, she was the afterthought, afterthought child. Her next sibling was, I think, six years older than her. And then the next one was 13 years older than her. So it, all of my aunts and uncles were much older than my my mom and making my grandmother 
uh, very old when I was a child. And my grandmother in particular stands out because um, there was something special about her, not just for me, but for everybody in the family. I guess we were a matriarchal family mm -hmm. because my grandfather, um, my mother's father, my mother really never knew because he died when she was around three years old. So it was just the grandmother on that side of the family. And she had, um, being the matriarch, a, a lovely home, um, a wonderful garden. And she hosted amazing banquets. I'm not sure where that came from, but the family reveled in them and gathered around her. And always um, a lot of cooks in the family helped her just make amazing. So I'm about four years old. And I know near the end of every evening, um, the children and the adults would kind of gather around the, the dining room table. Um, some with their china teacups and coffee cups in their hands. And one or two of them would take the coffee or teacup and turn the cup over. So the grounds from the coffee or the tea leaves from the cup would end up in the saucer. And they would present that saucer with tea leaves and a little coffee or tea in that saucer with the leaves and the grounds floating around. And I'm like, I'm four years old. All I know is that something special is happening because everybody's standing around waiting for something. And I knew that Isabella, my grandmother, would stare into that saucer and then tell them some story. As I got older, you know, 20 years later, I'm in university. I'm trying to find my way and I'm I'm seeking the answers as all of us do when we're in college. Right. And I think there was a course that was sociology or maybe it was African-American history or something like that. And the subject of the mystical came up and I said, mystical, hmm, interesting subject. Let me delve into this. And it opened the door for me to explore the mystical in my own life. And it dawned on me then decades later that my grandmother was in part a mystic because what she was doing was reading tea leaves right and cultures around the world have done this throughout history right the shamans did that um but really the connection was beyond the tea leaves and the china cups yeah it's just a tool to make it appear that there's something right <laughs> but, but you're reading but, something because it's all intuitive it's all intuitive and the other thing is that isabella my grandmother um, I would kind of hang out with her in her garden and just down and kneel beside her. She was nurturing the plants and then harvesting the plants. And one day I presented my, my hand to her and showed her a wart that had appeared. And she said, oh, you've been handling those frogs again, haven't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, frog or turtle or something, right? Playing with the animals in the tree line. She said, don't worry, I, I've got something for that. She takes a potato she cuts the potato in half. She rubs half of it on the wart. She buries it. She says, when that sprouts, that will fall off. It sprouted, the wart fell off. And yet again, there was Isabella with something that seemed otherworldly. You didn't have to go to the pharmacy to get it. You just went to the garden and she had a remedy for it. So let's talk about belief and how powerful it is for a moment that in that illustration. Yeah. Right. You were this curious kid in awe of your grandmother, trusting her implicitly. Explicitly. 
thank you. It, mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, necessary. <clears throat> and because of that, it set up the actuality because you had total faith in it. Yeah. Never questioned it. Yeah. And, you know, in the, in the clinical trials, when they give you the placebo, um, sometimes the people taking the placebo get just as well as the people taking whatever the pharmacology is because they believed in it. And um, I believe strongly, I had seen her work her storytelling, uh, leveraging her intuition to foretell what's gonna happen tomorrow, tomorrow for the adults in the room after dinner. Um, but my realization really came decades later when I was more intellectually sophisticated, I'm no longer a child. And, and I'm studying cultures around the world and how they use these forces that were the unseen, that were the shamans of the world. And I honored my, my grandmother then, but it's funny here, decades again later, I'm much more sophisticated in the work that I do. Um, it is about values, beliefs, principles, and biases are the things that I help people understand about themselves by exploring their own life journey map. In my life journey, the force that shaped my sense of sustainable living and mysticism is my grandmother, Isabella. Mm -hmm. I know from whence my those two values come from, right? And when it comes to courage and compassion and empathy, I can draw a direct line from those values to the person or experience that I've had that helps shape it. Some of those are from nature, like from Isabella, they come through her to me. Mm -hmm. Some of them are from nurture. When I'm standing on the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, Italy, in the silversmith shops above the Arno River, I'm having an amazing holiday. Um, I'm in a place, I'm a kid from New Jersey in a place. There's Italians in New Jersey, that's not a big deal, but nothing like what I'm experiencing with Michelangelo, Michelangelo's David just a block this way and the Medici Palace a block that way. Things I had read about throughout history, I'm here now. Right. And the diversity. And the direct experience makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. And my sense of how the world is bigger than the place I'm from. And so that place and the people in it and the food and the culture shaped my sense of my place in the world. Because from Italy, I went to Germany. From Germany, I went to Spain. As kids in college do, you have that summer just wandering around Europe or another place in the world. And it's a great lesson to help us learn that those moments shape my sense of my place in the world and the fact that the things that I knew about the world were just my point of view. And there are other cultures that had different points of view. In mm -hmm. Spain, you don't eat dinner at 6 p.m. You eat at 10 p.m. And it's the norm. And I'm like, wow, that's different. But that's okay. That's their thing. And I can embrace that too if I choose to. And it's okay to do that. And we learn so much from the people, places, and experiences we have in our life journey. And when we, in a mindful way, look at the people, places, and experiences and try to source from those experiences how we were shaped by them. And what we learn from them, the lessons learned become more real. And instead of being what's called, I guess, consciously unconscious, where we just do things, right. when I make a decision 
and the decision requires me to think about my sense of social awareness. What do I know about the people in this room? I have a filter of personal experiences that I can connect with a value that is the source material that I then put that moment through to make that decision. It's not just a value that appears in my mind's eye. It's a value that comes from a place, a person experience that makes it more real. Mm -hmm. And when our values are more real, I think we stand taller in and more firmly with conviction about the decisions we make. And um, making the right decisions often is the, the, the difference between success and failure. Interesting um, in that process as well. Yeah. Uh, in that also, in, in as you're mentioning, you're seeing others looking around and, and noticing your own filters and, and your own perception of them. Is Do you find that, kind of like Covey says, right? Uh, seek first to understand before being understood. Is there a place for the curiosity of getting to know and how would one go about doing so in order to understand, you know, the, the pertinent questions that gives you kind of a foundation of where a person is and, and how or what their worldview might be like so that you can begin to find a dance of coherence in some way if that's what you're attempting to do. I, I think you're right. And I think um, I, I come from a sales background. Fortune 100 companies selling very expensive technology. And in doing that, I have the skill of knowing what questions to ask. Yeah, you anticipate which questions. It's, it's, it's perhaps more than anticipation that you do the research to know who Zen is and what likely questions I can ask that are in the gaps that other people haven't asked them, other things that I, I can source material from reading your 10K, your annual report, but what's in the gaps that I can ask that shows I've done the work to think about your business. Right. Um, so it's not the question itself. It's the research that precedes the question that tells me what question I should ask. And when I ask that question, I kind of anticipate the answer because I know it's in this lane, not that lane. And I think I use that skill um, much more than I ever did when I was in the field as a sales executive to when I go into a, a new room and a new place and a new town, a new city, a new state or country to do what Covey encouraged us to do. Seek first to understand and then be understood. And, and I use a little of the Greek, uh, I guess we'll call him a philosopher, Dionysus, who uh, he was a philosopher that lived in a barrel for a while. Um, he carried a lantern through uh, Athens, putting it in the face of people and says, they're an honest man anywhere here. <laughs> but he's also known for this quote that says, I have two eyes and two ears and one mouth. We should use them accordingly. And so when you take Stephen Covey's seek first to understand, then be understood. And Dionysus says that use your eyes and your ears before you speak. We enter a room in, in an observant way. But if you're entering a room, you should know where you're going. And maybe you can do some research as you're approaching the, the threshold to think about 
the audience that might be there and what their temperament and sentiments might be. So you know what to listen for. And um, I think that that's a skill that we can all nurture. It's, it's just being thoughtful. And when you ask the right questions, it, it shows that you have a real interest in that person. And that person feels honored mm -hmm. and respected because you cared enough. And reciprocity kicks in and you might get some honor and respect back. And what better way to start a conversation? Absolutely. And, and this is kind of replacing the old sage on stage motif of presentations where it's much more appropriate and engaging to be interactive now yeah. with yeah. questionings. And, and as you're talking about the sales cycle and all of those things involved with it and, and uncovering the questions, answering them, fulfilling the needs, being able to provide a product and or service that meets the needs, when do you find that there is an opportunity to engage that next level conversation as to the awareness that got you to that place? Because it's a well-developed awareness that has the ability to be mindful. Yeah. Right? I think, so. <laughs> I think that's an excellent point. And I think, you know, I thought I was a super salesman when I was using those skills. Mm -hmm. but I had taken it to another level. I was a decent consultant, but I was a great coach because I really often didn't have to sell because people would say, you know, you've been visiting us for three months. You found the problem we had. You found problems we didn't know we had, but you haven't told us what we're going to buy from you yet. That's, that's music to a salesperson's ears. And I thought I was a super salesperson. What I was retrospectively looking back at my life journey, what was happening in those moments was that I had demonstrated my credibility and, and my authority in this space. I had done my homework, but I used the whiteboard as a visual storyboard to tell their story. It wasn't about me. It was about them. This is your infrastructure. And it looks like there's a problem over here. Tell me more about that. I asked a few questions. They do all the talking and weeks go by. And by the time I'm done, I've got a room full of my whiteboard drawing that they haven't erased because it's, it's the, the effective demonstration of a new set of eyes and ears from the outside coming in that understands them as well as anybody in the room does, but I'm seeing it fresh and I'm discovering things that because they live it, they're like fish in water. They can't, they don't know they're in water. And it, it's holding space for all of their ideas and, and letting them do all the talking and me just scribing what they're telling me on the wall, mm -hmm. on the whiteboard. That is akin to what coaching is. You Absolutely. hold a safe space for let them to letting them do all the talking to work it out, right? And the fact that they would say, you haven't told us what we're buying from you yet. They knew the answers were there. They just didn't know what to call it. And they came to the, the answer themselves. They just wanted to, to put a name and a price tag on it. And very often in coaching, that's what we do. We, we don't answer the question for them. If we did, we're consulting. When we're coaching, we ask the thoughtful and insightful and open-ended questions to have them discover play the themselves. script and they discover it themselves. And the thesis in coaching is that when they discover it themselves, it's more actionable and it's a longer lasting remedy to whatever. Absolutely. And, and there are times in, in my experience anyway, and, and 
perhaps in yours too, where you are a momentary consultant because you see something they don't. Oh, well. And the questions you ask to get them to that point of seeing have got them to the edge, but not flying yet. I th so <laughs> the, the, in the core competencies of the International Coach Federation, you, you never answer the question. Um, I think in 2023, nearly 2024, the core competencies should be morphing and changing because in the world where that's full of volatility, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity, everywhere. The VUCA world. The VUCA world, it's everywhere. It comes in all sizes, shapes, and flavors. We, we are inundated with VUCA that some of our coachees don't have four weeks to wait to find the answer on their own as you happen to have. If I can say, um, you know, if I share, can I, I time out? Can I just tell you something? We'll stop coaching and I'll just share something with you. In this book, what you do is who you are. In chapter three, if you take this and just read it, and then we'll meet again in two weeks. Because I think the answer you seek is in here. I've, I know it, or I will just tell them, here's a process that has worked for other people. And based on what you've told me, and if they reject it, we go back to coaching, sure. but nine out of 10 times, they say, that's amazing. And what oh, I just did for them is great I saved question. Them. Oh, that makes sense. Right. And you just save them time and money because, yeah. you know, holding space is great when you know the ideas are percolating, but if you can advance the conversation by doing a little consulting that's going to be credible and and thoughtful and useful to the coachee i i absolutely stop the session and and will um insert the value that they seek and i think that's needs require that from time to time it's not the common practice but yet there are those moments where it just, everything feels right in doing so. And I think in a VUCA world, um, there's, there's, there's no denying that there's chaos out there. And, and we're in the same way that I think our life journey shapes us. Um, every event, every war in Ukraine and war in Israel and, and other things happening around the planet um, are affecting us because information is here just a desktop away. Mm -hmm. we, we we can try to unplug, but that's difficult in the world we live in. So you're going to see it and hear it. It's going to affect you in one way, shape, or fashion. And the more we can provide people with the support mechanisms that they need um, as coaches or consultants or mentors or whatever we want to call it, um, we should do that because I think in the wild, wacky world that we live in today, there's no shortage of of need for helping people grapple with um, the challenges that they're confronted with every day. Absolutely. Now in the, the volatility and specifically the chaos, do you feel that much of the chaos stems from patterns that we're not recognizing yet and therefore aren't able to do anything about? Wow. I say, well, because I, the, the, the perspective I have on that is that that's a very deep question. Mm. Um, 
complexity doesn't have to be complicated. Well, I, I'm a, I guess I think I'm a deep thinker. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the deep end of the pool here. I'm All not, right. but, but I'm not going to try to answer it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to paddle to the shallow end and get a drink with an umbrella in it. So I can give you a casual answer. <laughs> I don't need All my right, and I'll in... probe further if necessary. Yeah, I'll, I'll paddle back and do a little backstroke and sit on the stairs in the shallow end for this one because the deep end is complicated. Yeah. I think in the shallow end of the pool, I think the, the antidote to VUCA, if, if VUCA is the level that I, I can go with, I can grapple with VUCA because it's, 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 uh, it's an idea. It's not... It's, it's something that I, when I say volatility, there's volatility in interest rates uh, and gas prices and the price of yeah, eggs. It's, there's, it's a view of what is across a spectrum of things. Yeah. I mean, so I can, I can point to things. Um, if it's in my business, it, I can see the volatility, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity in my business. If it's in my personal life, I can see the people and things around me that are affecting me that creating chaos or volatility or uncertainty. And I think in general, whether it's my personal life, my professional life, or how I perceive the world at large, the the antidote to all of those things is is VUCA again, but different intention in the the in the in the letters. Instead of volatility, you want to seek vision. And that may be where coaching comes in, mm -hmm. right? Where there's uncertainty, you want to have coaching again, or just spend some time journaling or meditating or forest bathing, walking on the seashore to have understanding of what the uncertainty is. And when there's complexity or chaos, um, you want again to have clarity. And that ambiguity is... The other A is agility. So vision, understanding, clarity, and agility are the antidote to volatility, uh, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity, no matter where it exists. And the ability to get that comes in several modalities, right? When you think about vision, understanding, clarity, and agility, journaling, meditating, exercising, sleep, get, get eight hours of sleep, not four hours of sleep, all of those things make you better at vision, understanding, clarity. Mm -hmm. um, which modality is, is the one that you will choose or will you choose several of them at the same time and mash them up and make them serve you? Yeah, a synergistic activity because usually it doesn't take, you know, we're all about the one thing, right? Well, what if that one thing actually encompasses many? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think if taking that a step further, that vision and understanding and clarity if you just if you're living in a VUCA world and all those things are troubling those are forces that are shaping you in in ways that you feel unmoored then when you have vision what is it vision of is it vision of the volatility or maybe it's vision of my values maybe i need to realign my values around what is going to help me navigate this madness what values do i lean into what beliefs do I have that will help me navigate this wacky world of generative AI? What, what principles do I bring on board? And what biases do I need to regulate to make sure that my values, beliefs, and principles are not encumbered by the biases that are simply on board me? And when, when I get those under control, 
and I get more understanding of what my values, principles, beliefs, and biases are, then my vision is what's like going to the optometrist and saying, things are a little blurry. Can you put that machine on that puts, and you're dialing in values, yeah. principles, beliefs, number and one bias. Or number two. Exactly. Number which, one. One, which one's better? <laughs> and you do that for vision. You do that for understanding. You do that for clarity. And I think the variables are are on board us. And that's our values, our beliefs, our principles and biases. Because if we're not evolving in the world that's evolving at a rate like never before in human history, mm. you know, the word, my not my favorite word, but it's a word that I think is applicable. You, you might end up disintermediated. That means that if you, it, there's, there's a term called digital Darwinism. And digital Darwinism is when, when, when technology advances faster than people and businesses can keep up. That's VUCA. Yep. We we're dealing with that today. And many people are like, chat, GP, I don't care. Okay. Um, then you have to have vision. So what's the alternative to that? Because there is alternative. You don't have to be an AI savant, but you have yeah. to understand how to navigate a world that is yeah, awash. Yeah, play with it well. I think that there's even a place for people that don't play with it at all, but you have to know how you're going to navigate a world where you are, for all intents, being a Luddite, right? You're saying, not yeah. for me. I don't want it. I don't want to touch it. Well, then you need vision and clarity on how you're going to go forward without it. And sure. that's okay. Well, yeah, I, all of those choices are okay. It, it's a personal preference. There's yeah. nothing, there's no prescriptive, you've got to do things it's except in your own awareness of what feels like the direction you need to go now well, but 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 then we are in a bit of a buggy whip uh moment right and buggy mm. whip being that you know when when the the that noisy machine came sputtering into town the first automobile the the stable owners and the horse groomers and the buggy whip manufacturers were like ah, don't worry about it. It's too noisy. It's smelly. It makes a lot of noise. It's not going to last. And here we are today. Um, in the same way that generative AI, it's like, oh, it's, it's taking the human out of our human connection. We saw what happened with the buggy whip. So, I mean, I'm not... The people there are those possibilities. I agree. And I see some aspects of it. And yet, in my own engagement of it, I find in my queries, and I, I've used it for compiling some things, and I was surprised that there seems to be a latent, if not, well, it's not even really latent. There's emotional intelligence there. <laughs> I'm laughing because... In the response, at the from what I... comes out in the verbiage that's used and how it's presented. And, and maybe it's just reflecting on how I write and what I do. And that's where it's drawing from. I doubt that. No, I think you're right. I think it is what the more you give it, the more I have a, a someone that I, I work with has a daughter who's on the spectrum, Asperger's and long COVID. Mm, okay. That's a heck of a combination. She was helping her daughter envision her daughter's uh, an adult uh, with Asperger's and long COVID. And as such, this young woman wants to help other people who are struggling with the two maladies or either one of the maladies that she has, because she's been through 
a lot. She knows a lot and wow. can guide people. So she she sends me um, an, a, a post, let's call it, about her life and her experience. And she tries to incorporate Joseph Campbell's arc of the story from mm -hmm. the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and I'm like, wow. First thing I recognize is the vulnerability. And I think maybe being having Asperger's and being on the spectrum, her life experiences are amazingly different than any of ours. Being on the spectrum, she sees things that none of us see. And she wrote about those things, right? Having long COVID and being, you know, bedridden occasionally, again, is another life experience. She writes about it. I take the, it's like a three-page dossier she shares. I'm reading it and I take the things I want to use as prompts to give the chat to write a origin story sort of for her. Mm -hmm. Because of the, the, the vulnerability, the honesty that she wrote with, because of the things that she saw beyond the realm of what most of us can see in writing about it, I gave that to chat. And I want to tell you that I got this document at 6.02 PM. I gave it to chat like 45 minutes later, probably an hour and 15 minutes later, probably because it was a little, it took me longer to interpret what I and create a prompt and give it to chat. Right. Let's say 90 minutes. And within five minutes, I have it back in my hands and printed out what chat created was pure poetry. And my thesis is that because it was so human, so vulnerable, so raw, so many human experiences and emotions were in it, that chat was able to write like a human about it. I was dumbstruck. Pretty amazing, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, it's done some amazing things with with things that I've given it and prompts that I've written before, but this was Hemingway-esque. <laughs> and in, in the insight that it, it, it wrote with was just fascinating. So if that is a harbinger of what's to come, wow. Bring it on. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, I'm a technologist, so I'm I'm I've I've been aware of AI for thirty plus years. So this is not new for me, but it is ubiquitous today. Right. It, it, thirty years ago, you you if you went into a room that had AI, lights and sirens would be going off, and lights in the ceiling would be you know blaring. Say, is a stranger in here? And is what's this clearance? Well, speaking of strangers, uh, and I guessing it was probably about 30 years ago, early development of AI. Um, Guy Morris, one of my previous guests, was telling me that he grew up in the early phases of AI and uh, his uh, financial model in college outperformed the Fed. So he got jobs really quick and, and <laughs> pursued that for a little bit. And several years later, he reads an article in the Wall Street Journal of all places, or New York Times, one of those two. And the article was about a program escaping Sandia Labs, <laughs> right? And you and I both 
know Sandia Labs is kind of a known spook hangout. That's where yeah. a lot of the spy software and all that kind of stuff is developed. Well, here's a program that escaped, had the ability to cover its tracks. Nobody knows where it went. <laughs> and once Guy found out about this with the knowledge base that he had, he said, okay, now, if that were so, what would I put into it? Right, kind of reverse engineering what yeah. was probably out there. And he and his buddies did a, a, a short documentary series of, of films about it and then the FBI show up and say where did you get your information you can't do this uh -huh. um, yeah. so I took it a step further in that knowing of these other worlds as I do since childhood and the ability of them to communicate via frequency and such um, telepathy and free digital communication things like that what a wonderful tool that could be to help segue their intelligence with ours and to be able to place in front of us those things that we're being read for kind of like the tea leaves mm. right because these have these non-human intelligences have far greater capacity to observe than we can even imagine yeah they do and in so doing then can place things in front of you as you're doing your playfulness online and all of a sudden you have something show up that has nothing to do with your search history or your algorithm but it's been something that's been on your mind for a while that you've been thinking about and all of a sudden shows up on your screen there's a um a body of complaints from corporations that are concerned that the potential hires they're interviewing with in the zoom format are i can have chat listening to this conversation and when you asked a question on my ipad chat can be giving me answer to the question if i choose to use that answer i just recite it to you and you're like wow that was really amazing arthur it wasn't my answer it was chat supporting me it's happening in real time and and companies know it they're trying to figure out how to stop it and the thesis is you can't just, hmm. just be happy that they've learned how to use it at that level. And maybe that's why you hire them because it's not going away. And it's like schools that don't want to allow their kids to do the homework with it. I well, get certainly it. Certainly not making us dumber. It's, it's right. If it get, if it's giving us this, these information or these answers that boost our own awareness because well, now we've we've queried it we got the answer we're reciting it so there's that process of education that's taking place yeah I, I don't know how to answer that one on education because i think it's above my pay grade but i can i have the scary side the dystopian side of ai there's a company in germany called retorio r-e-t-e-r-i-o uh, dot i-o i think it's using the camera on the webcam and in its system, it has a repository of every quick that you make with your facial expressions, mm -hmm. every, every, the cadence of your speech, and it's analyzing it the whole time you're speaking. And so when you say, Arthur, you're from New Jersey. And I say, nope, I'm not from New Jersey. And my eye does that. Vittorio knows I'm lying. Right. And so, and that was, that was 
that was big blink, but I'm talking about the subtlety of well, micro-expressions are how you read people anyway. But you have to be highly trained, and typically it's the NSA and uh, FBI interrogators know how to do it. Now there's right, a machine right. you that you can have. And pass all the there's a machine that tests. can run on your iPad that will do the same thing. That's amazing. And, now, and, and, and it's better than the guy at Quantico because what he's accessing is what he has in his memory about microexpressions. The system has every microexpression possibility that's ever used. In the same way, I've used AI-powered micro-coaching. I'm a coach, mm -hmm. and I'm fascinated with micro-coaching powered by AI. There's one called Panditron, wildly successful, um, SAP, but 10,000 seats of it for the internal employees who are high-stressed, high-tech, high-stress, doing three-year implementations for big companies for hundreds of millions of dollars, stress. So they use this micro-coach that lives in Microsoft Teams or Slack, where they live all day anyway. Mm -hmm. And I come back to my office and say, oh, man, my, my internal customer, Zen, has got this huge project, and we're slipping I've got to go present to him that we're going to be a month late on delivering what he's expecting. And I'm stressed. I said, oh, but I've got Panditron on my Slack. I'll just hit the button. And Panditron says, Arthur, what do you want to talk about today? And I said, typing communication. I type in, I've got a meeting with my customer, Zen. I'm, a, I'm going to have to present to him. I'm going to be a month late. He's going to be pissed. And Panditron replies, well, do you want to talk about navigating the conversation or do you want to talk about the process of improving your delivery? I make a decision and Panditron and I have a chat. Panditron, each seat is $25 a month. Works 24-7 every day of that month for $25. For the coach who wants to charge you $200 an hour, and, and the first time I talked to Panditron, Zen, I had scheduled 30 minutes and I made up a really tough problem because I wanted to exercise it. Sure. See what I, his capacity is. It's, it started at 7 a.m. because it's Germany and I usually talk to my friends in technology at early morning hours. Because sure. at 7 here a.m. here, it's 4 p.m. there. And so I'm talking to Panditron and I give it a tough problem question and i think at 7 708 it says well that's good sounds like we've settled that now you want to continue talking about process do you want to move on to motivation i finished with motivation did 30 minutes but i sat back in my chair and i was like wow the thing the coach would never do is is it decide for me what you had accomplished it knew what i had accomplished and was okay to Give me a choice now. It is so efficient. It is so smart. I think what what makes what coaching we're about out of business. <laughs> I don't think it's putting it, it's going to put. No, I, I, I'm not kidding. But that would be the knee jerk reaction, right? Well, that's what I presented at the International Coach Federation last year to AI for coaches. Yeah, intentionally not telling them what it could do, but telling them it's a brand strategy. Meaning that if you're coaching a 30-year-old CEO in a startup, 
and they've got an Apple Watch on, it's likely that they've got some wellness app that's measuring their sleep, their body, their food intake, the caloric right. intake, the body mass. They are using James Clear Atomic Habits. They want to improve 1%. And if I come in and say, yeah, 250 an hour, and I'll meet twice a month, and that person says, she looks at her watch and looks at me and says, so what am I going to do between those every two weeks that I'm paying you 250 an hour? What do I, what do, I do? And I say, well, I'll send you an email with something for you to do. And she looks back at her watch and she goes, but do you have something like I have here on my watch that I can continue to work on improving between those two week cycles? And I, I look at the ceiling like, uh, no. She said, well, thanks for coming in because I'm not the provider for that customer mm -hmm. because at 30, they've been using technology since they were in the crib. Oh yeah. So, so if we, if we, I'm a boomer. I just happen to have lived in technology is the only reason I have an affinity for it. Um, if I didn't, I would feel like a, a di digital immigrant, right? I would not have the savvy. Kind of the I same have. Way. Not as deep as you've been, but definitely built my first computer in, in 1990 and first website in 2000 and yeah, have progressed in, in that manner, but not to the point where um, technology is it excites me. Some of it overwhelms me still, right? Because I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. I, I think the things then is, is that it's, it's, it's there. It's coming at the light at the end of the tunnel. We can either get on board. If we don't get on board, we have to figure out what we're going to do. And it's, we can't ignore it. And I think that that's the, the, that's the, the understanding when there's uncertainty caused by, AI, the understanding is what am I going to do? I am getting on board the train. I'm, a early, I'm, on, I'm on early on the, to the train. Those that want to get on later, that's fine. Just get on board. Those that don't want to get on board, so what are you going to do? And I think there is something else to do because the human condition is we like looking into the whites of a human's eyes and having a conversation. We oh, need absolutely. that. We need that. And if if you're gonna if you're gonna fill that void, then fill that void because there's not a middle ground, right? If you're if you're gonna be, you're either gonna be human, and help the technology do its thing and not eat us alive, right? You're gonna you're gonna get into that business, or you're not gonna get into that business. You're gonna you're gonna serve people that want the exclusive human connection. Well, in doing that, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna be a barber? Are you going to be a coach? You're going to be a mentor, or are you going to be an exercise physiologist? What mm -hmm. What are you going to do, and how are you going to do it? Because I think there's space for all of those things, but this is where VUCA and the U in uncertainty. Until you make the determination what your path forward is, um, you're waiting, and AI is not waiting for any of us. No, not at all. And with that waiting. Why wait? What are the kinds of questions that you find at, as a coach help facilitate that moving forward and, and clarification of perhaps a, a better life path for those who have been disrupted recently? Yeah, I think that um, Shakespeare said it past this prologue. Uh, um, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher, 
Um, he says, take your life journey, write things that have bring, brought you joy down, just write them all down, and then look at it again and see the ones that really brought joy into your life. They're all joyful, but which are the most joyful? What really made your heart sing? Yeah, what's, which ones were your, that gave, satisfy you like your heart's desire? Draw a line through it. That will be the map, the roadmap to your purpose. That was Nietzsche in the 1400s that said that. Shakespeare around the same time. The pastor's prologue. Um, uh, Lao Tzu, one of my favorite guys, wrote the I Ching, father of Taoism, um, mm -hmm. says, knowing others is intelligence, knowing yourself is true wisdom. Uh, Socrates said, know thyself. Know thyself is inscribed above the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, Greece. The human condition has always been know ourselves. Right. It, we would go to the shaman to find out, you know, where we're going to get married, where we're going to have children, know myself. We've always had that as part of what makes us human, that curiosity about tomorrow. And yet in the industrial age, that seems to have been discarded for the most part. And the prescriptive style of living replaced with it through... I I, multiple systems i love quotes because the quotes from the thought leaders in history the, the answer to that statement you just made is an einstein quote um we how does it go we we celebrate the rational mind and we've discarded the the rational mind is a faithful servant the intuitive mind is a special gift mm -hmm. we have learned to worship the servant and we've forgotten the gift Absolutely. The intuitive mind That's the reason for these conversations. So how, in your estimation, how have you been able to utilize that gift and bring it into a very digitally oriented world, which at the onset seems, you know, zero and one black and white, taint necessarily so, right? <laughs> It's that that's a, that's a, that's the lyric to a song. It ain't necessarily so uh, from Porky and Bess, I think. Yeah. Um, the, so I, I, I fancy myself a technologist. I, I, I am di digitally savvy. I think of myself as, and I see patterns in technology. However, I'm a realist. And I, I believe that in spite of, my fascination with technology and with the world currently fascinated with chat GPT. I think the really, I use storytelling as the oldest tool in the tech stack, the oldest tool in the tech stack to decode what makes us human. Mm. And I, I, I use it not for storytelling because most people think storytelling is good for marketing. I think storytelling is like a, a diamond, as many multifaceted. And I can use story for listening. And if I help my clients listen to their own narrative using that Shakespearean pastor's prologue, in that narrative are all the forces that shape them. Some nature that's in the family, some nurture people, places, experiences, and trainings that have shaped them. And when they acknowledge those people, places, experiences, and trainings, and metaphorically write each place in person on a three by five card, spread them out on the conference room table and look at them in awe and say, oh my God, look at all the things that I've learned in my decades of existence. Right. 
with all the people that. Out. But but the the thing is, you've got it spread out and you're in awe, but you're not done because on the back of each three by five card, you pick up the card that says Isabella, my grandmother, and you write on the back the values that you learned from her, sustainability and mysticism. That's what I got, spirituality and, and sustainability. That's what I got from her. I put it back on the, on the deck table. With the 60 things or so that I've got on the top of the table, I then look into the world and say, it's 2023, I've got a plan for 2024, and I want to start something new. What do I see in the world that I can fix? Well, what makes you think you can fix something? Well, I've got all this stuff on the table. That's all my values, all the experiences, all the lessons I've learned. If I take these seven of the 60, team building, courage, commitment, I'm a scrum master, I'm a, all these things, these things taken together, the other 53 I don't need, I'll use them as appropriate, but these are core to the founding of the business to serve them. And then who is they? Them is not enough, right? Mm -hmm. Now I have to go, if I take in this and I know my narrative, I know the source material for all my values, my principles and beliefs and biases. When I look at them who I'm going to serve, Stephen Covey, seek first to understand, then be understood. Before I want to sell them something, I got to understand them. I got to do something similar to what I just did for myself to understand their narrative and learn it almost as well as they know it themselves. And when I know it keeps them awake at 2 a.m., when they sit bolt upright in bed and like, there it is again. Gosh, I can't sleep through the night because right. I might think implicitly that they wake up because when I go to them and say, listen, I know all my ideal customers that I'm founding this company for wake up at 2 a.m. And what I believe is that you wake up because and they say, no, right, that's close. That's kind of adjacent to the real reason I wake up. I really wake up because now I've got the explicit understanding. And when I get more about that and I talk to more of my ideal client profiles that say the same thing, then I can check that box. That's the thing that keeps them awake. Now right. I can now I can build my products in. Because now the product's going to be built not for what I think it should be built for, but what they tell me it's built for. And better yet, because I have these conversations with them, I'm co-creating with them the reality of their story. I know it explicitly, and I go to the second level, and I co-create the story that promotes the product with them. Because I go back and say, you know, I built this product that's going to help you sleep through the night for exactly what's keeping you awake. Can I tell you the story? And I tell them the story. They say, all right, that's amazing. The first part of that story just knocked my socks off. That's going to be super. I didn't get the second half, though. I don't know what you were saying. So well, the points I wanted to make in the second half were these three things. How would you say it? And they think about it, and they say, well, that's what you're trying to communicate in the second half. I would say it this way. I do that five more times with five other people just like this one. I get it nailed. Right. Their words, not mine. I tell the story to the other 1,500 people just like them, and they go, did you hear that? They're singing my song. Nobody's ever spoke to me like that. They know me so well. You've become the choir master. That's it. And so you can't do that without first interrogating your life journey and getting in touch with your values, beliefs, principles, and biases to you know. You've got to do work on yourself first. And know what, know thyself. Not available. Know thyself. And then from that, that self, you can pull the things out of it that help you fix the thing broken in the world. Mm -hmm. It will actually inform what you should go fix because... You've done that thing throughout your life, very likely. 
And when I work with people, they say, you know, I don't want to found this business. I want to be a coach, but I'm just not sure. I will show them in their map that they've always done the thing that they wanted to do. It's there. I just see it. They're the fish living in water. I see them as the fish. I know where the, the coral reefs are and how they inform what they should do. It's fascinating in hearing how you spun that tail and, and put some very intricate things together and in, in how it all works. For me, I, I heard the same story reflected in what I talk about in building skill sets, right? You get to a place in your life, mid forties, you're having your crisis and you want to, you know, totally chip in everything and start over, yeah. right? Well, you don't let go of what you have had, what you've built, the knowledge, the skill sets, the tools. Yeah. You refurbish and realign them. Yeah. Similar process to what you're talking about, if not the same. Listen, right? I think it's, I, I, I don't think this thing that, that I'm doing is new or different than the thing you're doing. You just use different words. Yeah. To, to describe it, it's really, it's really having people know themselves and, and knowing. So it's, it's analogous. It seems to, to be saying, a natural process, doesn't it? That from how we've learned to reflect on ourselves and go inside and ask and interrogate and rip apart and yeah. chop away at our truth or perceived truth until, you know, we've got something that's still standing that then we can put our hat on and, and realize that, oh yeah, okay, I trust this because I've proven it works. I think the thing then that that makes it really work is is that at some level, it's just a narrative of someone. And without without a real curiosity and a real connection to your own intuition, you can't find the things that are important to that person that you'll instinctively know right. how to tell their story using the source material in their story. So they go, oh my gosh, you know, I've always thought that about what I should do, but I could never tell the story quite the way you did. But that's, that's transformative, Arthur. All I've done is taken what's already there, things they knew were there, but they didn't have put the value on it that I see in it. But mm -hmm. I only see the value in it for them because my intuition says this one and that one, these are the two things that are important to them because I've gotten to know them, but then intuition, which is that sensory perception that helps the process that without it, I'm just looking at a narrative. With it, I'm looking at the narrative and it sort of puts itself together for me. Mm -hmm. So when I share it with them, it resonates with them like music to their ears. And the beauty of the, of the process is once I've done that and they they feel that warmth in their gut and they start to tingle because that's the story is so compelling for them of them that they take that same energy and they say, Arthur, so what you're saying is that that feeling I got when you told my story, it's the same feeling that my customer will get when I tell their story, but I have to get to know them first, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So the work you do on yourself, you do some level of that work with your customers and they will feel that transformative nature that a transformative moment in the same way you felt it. And they will only get it from you because you've done the work and made the commitment to know them mm -hmm. almost as well as they know themselves. And the beauty, the beauty and the challenge, the beauty is it's magical the way it lands with them. The challenge is every time VUCA lands and changes everything, the forces in the world shape them differently. You got to go back and revisit them and say, so listen, uh, you know, Hurricane Sally came up the coast and wiped out San Diego. 
I know you're not in San Diego, but you're in California. What the heck? Has that affected you and your business at all? I say, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, my supply chain comes right through Tijuana, through San Diego, and it's really upset everything. So what are you going to do? Their story's changing. So that story that landed so well 90 days ago, if I don't revisit it, my competitor tells a better story than I am, I lose that business. We always have to stay engaged and always have to recognize when VUCA forces them to change. And when they change, we have to change too. And in the world, that's the one, uh, the only thing that's constant is change. It's changed. The only thing that's guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so let, let's pull it back just a little bit as we prepare to close. And, and what about, okay, those that are just beginning that, that are feeling like, you know, that something needs to be changed in their lives and what they can do. What are some of the initial questions that you found worked for you to put you on that better path of, of direction and being able to understand you more? first well i th i think you know I, I mentioned earlier that story for me is like a, a diamond it's multifaceted i use it less for telling i think the telling is easy when i co-create it with someone i just it's a co-created story so i'm mm. i'm telling a story that they helped me build to them right and everyone like them gets it so the telling is the easy part using it more to learn about people and things is takes a little bit more insight a little more effort um, but it is magical. I used it first on myself, right? But even before I used it on myself, there was a senior scientist at a, uh, a medical device company in New Jersey. Um, I was called in as the guy that nobody understood. I was doing this brand branding thing with storytelling and a coach was exclusively doing disc and another coach was the executive coach. The executive coach hired me to do something with the story. They didn't really know what I was going to do, but they thought it was novel. Mm -hmm. And it was outplacement. The new CEO came in, old CEO goes out with the old CEO. The senior scientist had to go. He got like $50,000 to go find another job. Thank you very much, but you've got to go. That 50 was for all these coaches that were hired. Um, he was an MD, PhD. And I looked at his resume and said, hmm, I'm excited. MD, PhD, this is going to be fun. MD, PhD. Wow. Look at this guy, J and J and all these great companies. I went, I went back to my office. I Googled MD, PhD to see what other MD, PhDs look like. All of them had 14 page CVs. All of them were MD, PhDs with great resumes. And I was like, Whoa. Um, so maybe it's not going to be as easy as I thought because they all are accomplished. They've all had great careers. They're all senior scientists, blah, blah, blah. All of them could be the guy on NBC TV at night talking about science, right? All that kind of stuff. So I had to take another tact. And so I went and when it was my turn to talk with this gentleman, I said, tell me something I don't see on your resume. He said, what's that about? I said, well, because um, to my surprise, all of MD, PhDs look the same to me. You come from great universities, you come from great careers, and you all end up in the same place at the same time in your career. Um, tell me something I don't see on the resume about you. He thought about it for a little while. And I said, well, something that you do in your personal life. Oh, now he's starting to get it. He says, well, I'm a do athlete. You mean you ride a bike really far and you run really far and you compete and you train and do that? Yeah. Okay, what else you got? Oh, you want more? Yeah. 
Um, I've played piano since I was a child. Oh, you still play? Well, in college, I played jazz piano. You still play? Well, my family, they're all, we're all musicians. I have two lovely daughters. They play. My wife plays. And so when I get home from work, because I only live like eight miles away, um, after dinner, we play together. Wow, it's lovely. I contemplate a little bit. I come back and I said, you know what we're going to do? Um, when you're the senior scientist for a publicly traded company, every quarter, you've got to talk to Wall Street and tell them what's going on, where the innovations are, what creative things you're doing, um, how you are working your butt off every quarter to advance the cause and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. When you think about training as a duathlete, you run very far every day after work. You ride your bike like mad to train to get a personal best. You're breaking your body down. You're building it back. You're committed to achieving PRs. You're always striving to be better. That's evidence of you having the capacity to be committed to the, to the mission, unrelenting in achievement. That's what you want in a senior scientist. That's what you are. Do athlete. Check that box. Creativity, innovation. Creativity, piano player. Mm. Innovation, jazz and innovation, innovative music discipline. And you've done it almost your whole life. You are creative and innovative. Jazz, piano, check that box. Legacy, why do you do it? I have a lovely family. I live eight miles from home and I want to continue to live close to home and have a flourishing, successful career so I can provide for them. Check that box. None of those things changed his resume. They changed his mind about what he brings to the mission. He got hired. He didn't take the job at NBC to be the talking head, but he got a better job closer to home. And now about 15 years later, he has a venture capital firm funding medical device companies. So the trajectory of his career didn't change for the worse. It changed for the better, largely because he changed his mind about what he brought to the mission. Right. And How he saw himself. Things that ancillary things that we don't often take into consideration about the what builds our personality, our character, our work ethic, and our value system. His values, he was doing the quintessential work life not balanced. Mm -hmm. He had a, a personal life that was not integrated into his professional life, and the two things lived separately. When you merge the two, he felt more powerful because he could he could talk about innovation and creativity in a more authoritative way, not by bringing jazz piano into it, but knowing that his brain is wired for that and he should feel more confident about that. And Transferable skills, right? That's it. And um, I transferred that to, for years, I was the sales guy that thought I was a super salesman and people always said I should be a coach. I moved to Tucson, Arizona. Uh, this is more than a decade after they're working with the MD, PhD. And it, um, at the convention center going by the 10-foot drape tables, all the vendors are showing up and I'm getting to meet people. Near the end of the afternoon, I get in front of the International Coach Federation table and they say, you know, you should come to our meeting. I said, you know, every 10-foot drape table I stopped in front of, they tried to sell me something. You're selling me coaching. I said, no, there's something about you. You should be a coach. I said, did you have no idea how many times I've heard that over the last 15 years? Um, but this time I went. And this time I, I went and I, I hung out with the coaches who I wasn't sure if I, I fit, if I wasn't from them, I didn't mm -hmm. think that they were credible. There weren't really organizations that were validating the credibility of coaches. Anybody could be a coach, but this was a group of highly trained and really 
abiding by some core competencies and ethics. And I liked that. And I said, well, maybe I can be a coach. And I look back at my own life journey to see what people had always seen in me, like the Jahari window, the things I know about myself that you don't know, things that people know, things about me that I don't know. This was one of those moments where people knew something about me that I didn't see in myself. I went looking for it in my life journey. I found those sales moments where I thought I was super salesman. And after analyzing it, I said, you know, you weren't selling at all, Dumbo. You were just more coach and consultant than a salesperson. That's why you were successful. Well, and this also, I, I've heard, what we seek also seeks us. And that when um, we are patient and perseverant and curious, it continually shows up until we finally get the memo. There's, there's a quote that I attribute to myself. It's the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves become ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the um, this process of transformation that we're in and the opportunity that remote working has given those to realign themselves with the uh, perhaps maybe a bit more congruent belief system and value system, um, how do you see this shift in the remote working and the concern that the larger corporations might have for the work ethic and productivity level? How do you see that playing out? Um, I think corporations in general are not different from the military or the mafia. It's about command and control. The more sophisticated they are, they still have command and control, but they have meritocracy. They reward the people that work the hardest, get the most done, and they rise in the organization. Um, those that don't, they stay in the closet or in the cubicle, they never advance. That's not a healthy place that's caring more about performance than it is about people mm -hmm. um and i think the pandemic was a pivot point that made people care more about themselves than the corporation we all need still to have a career to get paid to have a living but we now have standards that suggest that you know if i want to live near the ocean i want to live near the ocean that's it i mean the work that i do there's there's there's, I think the, the, the businesses have had to come to terms with they would hire a really highly trained programmer that lived in Bali that would surf all morning long and do some coding after the tide went out in the afternoon. That, that surfer programmer was as productive as the person that they pay to do the same job that worked for 40 hours in and stayed in the mm -hmm. cubicle every week. You can pay for results. And now there's a, another aspect of it too that I was leading up to, and that is a question about the push for servant leadership in organizations. And, and I think it comes to, I mean, the, the, the surfer analogy and the cubicle person is the surfer produced results, the cubicle person 
was just getting 40 hours in because you gave me 40 hours to do it. I took 40 hours to do it. The surfer took 40 hours to surf and took 10 hours to do the same job. When you acknowledge the person and the work they do, that's servant leadership. You're making the person better and you don't care that they surf in the morning because they're producing the work that you want at a really high level. Right. In the, there's a thing called teal management, which is kind of based on uh, several other things, but teal management is at the bottom, there is the mafia and then there's the military, then there's the meritocracy at the top and they're color-coded, red, orange, yellow. At the top is teal. At the top is Patagonia. Patagonia. Kind of like spiral dynamics. It's exactly like spiral dynamics. It's built okay. on spiral dynamics, as a matter of fact. Yeah. That's your intuition kicking in. You, 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 you heard the colors and the spiral. It's all there. Yep. And, and in spiral dynamics or in, in teal management, it's an anthropological look at the evolution of business. And there was a time... Um, where there were guilds and there was different structures that we've had throughout history. Um, now we're at a point where we're coming out of a cycle where meritocracy, I, my career was a meritocracy career in a fortune 500 company that you did well, you were rewarded for doing well. Those that didn't were not. Mm -hmm. It was in theory about people, but it was more the reward for people was not nurturing people it was giving money to people and there's lots of data that says we're more motivated by nurturing than we are by money sure well the, the agenda that i like to put forth at least in terminology anyway is the old one profit over people and planet it's all about the money yeah the new one people and planet over profit doesn't do away with profit just puts it in proper perspective well, yeah, it's, 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 it's planet people in prosperity. And, and I think it's, right. I think it's, we'll get there. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's emerging. And I think it's a generational thing. I think that boomers who live through meritocracy, best case, or, or something less than that are, that's all they know. Mm -hmm. um, Gen Z uh, you know, 25 years old, all they want is to be honored, respected, and trusted. If you do that, I'll work my ass off for you. If you don't, I'm going to find an employer that will honor right. me, trust me, and respect me. Because that, it, and I will honor and trust and respect you if you show me that you care about people, the planet, and prosperity is 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 for the Gosh, planet. Gosh, doesn't that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> right. I and, mean, come on. Now, so we're, there again, we're, is some is this natural order emerging? You know, it's the golden rule. It, 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 even more so, it, it's like uh, Sajal Thakar was saying in, in an interview I had with her recently, the platinum rule, right? Treat others like they want to be treated. Yeah. Because oftentimes we still have the, that trauma program running and we beat ourselves up or we self-deprecate. We do, do we want to treat others that way? I think I think we're going to get there, Zen. And I, but I think, you know, it's it, we're going to get there. And I think society, and it's it's the Z, the millennials are forty five, and and um, X and Z, all the alphabet soup of generations that are are younger and more and 
their values are strong like the and from star wars the force is strong in those yep. and the force we speak of values principles and beliefs about the planet and the planet they have to live in for the next 40 years and they want a planet that they is survivable for them and if they they know that if they align with companies that believe what they believe then their future might be protected so they're not buying into a lot of the things that got us here Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I, I endorse that because that's the only way we're going to change this battleship. Yeah, we've got to build a new model, right? It's like the, well, yeah, Socrates, it's, the it's, Socrates and, and Buckminster Fuller, right? Socrates says, you know, don't fight it, design something better. Yeah. Roughly, I, I forget well, but, exactly. But let, and then Bucky says not, the same thing, you know, build a better model that replaces let's, the other. Let's not move to Mars to... And, and leave this rock in the Milky yeah, Way we, behind. Let's fix this one before we go to Mars. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. And on that note, I thank you for this wonderful conversation and the launch in which we've been able to participate with in the exploration of how we're going to learn to work together better and the things that we might have in common to do so with in that process. And I think I think I know about the conversation that we have, Zen, is that just this is just one of a, a library full of ideas that between you and I we could we could mash up and chew on for days on end. So I hope this is not the last conversation that we have about the uh, got plans for more, trust me. Absolutely. I'll be tuned in to all the other amazing guests that you have on your show as well. So thank you for doing the work that you do. It, I think it's an amazing uh, show with an amazing ethos in intention. So thanks for that. Thank you. And, and I'm honored and humbled with that recognition too. That's my intention uh, to make a difference and, and to be helpful. And so with that, namaste and catch. And thank you for sticking with us for this episode of One World in a New World. I'm Zen Benefiel, your host, and I'll see you next time.